Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So happy you're here with me today. Well, we've got a big mafia story for you. This is one you might have heard of. The author's book has been a massive best-selling title and bound to sell even more now that it's being made into a motion picture. It's a great honor to have as my guest Charles Brandt. He's been a defense attorney, the chief deputy attorney general of Delaware, and of course an author. And one of his, his detective novels, The Right to Remain Silent, was a favorite of President Reagan's. The book we'll be discussing today is called I Heard You Paint Houses, Frank the Irishman Sheeran, and the inside story of the Mafia, the Teamsters, and the Last Ride of Jimmy Hoffa. And it's also being brought to the silver screen by Martin Scorsese, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you're a busy guy these days. Well, thank you for having me. I just want to add Joe Pesci to the to the uh, to the list of uh, actors in the movie. I don't want to see him left. He's so talented. Oh, absolutely! And and shame on me for forgetting Joe Pesci. <laughs> and that's quite a coup getting him in the film, isn't it? I, I'd heard he'd retired from film. Well, he had, and uh, he was lured back. It took almost a year to get him back, but he's back on board now. Can I ask you how the filming is going? Very well. Uh, they're uh, looking to start filming, actually, uh, in about a month. So that's uh, that's a thrill. They're going to film in New York, and they've got a screenplay by the brilliant screenwriter uh, Steve Zalian, who won the Oscar for Schindler's List and uh, who has a real feel for humanity and uh, in his writing. So I'm really, I'm looking forward to it. That's great. So, so could you tell us how you happened to meet 
Frank Sheeran and write his story? Well, I I will tell that story, and in order to do that, I have to tell a little bit of my own because of, of how I fit into that story. Uh, I when I was sworn in as a as a prosecuting attorney in the state of Delaware, I was sworn in as a deputy attorney general. Uh, it was 1971, and we were in the middle of of the the crime wave that we're still in, really. Uh, up until up until that time period, uh, people in Delaware not only didn't lock their front doors, some people didn't even have keys to their houses. I know that sounds a little far-fetched, but that's true. And um, they didn't know how to deal with the crime wave. And so the attorney general was concerned that mistakes would be made by the police that would cause cases to get thrown out of court. It was a new phenomenon that was going on in those days uh, where evidence was being suppressed because the cop didn't cross the T or dot the I in connection with the arrest. And so the attorney general had those of us who were recently hired by him uh, sworn in as prosecutors. He swore us in. And then immediately we were sworn in as police officers by the Newcastle County police chief. And so we understood that our job was uh, was a dual job. We, we were there to assist in investigations, not merely have cases presented to us by the police, but we were there to be part of the police. And uh, particularly in homicides, we, we didn't want to see cases thrown out of court. And um, because a police officer made a mistake of some kind. And um, I found myself in the middle of homicide investigations, and uh, I I displayed a gift for uh, questioning people, a gift for interrogation, a gift for cross-examination. And in no time, I was in charge of these uh, homicide cases. And... um, I was elevated then to chief deputy attorney general, and I had a career. It was uh, a full-blown the career you would have if you were a detective and you were in charge of a homicide. And so I, I worked in that capacity. And then I left the attorney general's office, uh, ultimately to start my own law practice. And... Um, I wrote a book, as you mentioned, it was a favorite of of Ronald Reagan's. I wrote a book based on my uh, interrogations that led to uh, the solving of many crimes. And that book did well. It was called The Right to Remain Silent. Now, while it was a novel, and therefore fiction, it was, of course, based on uh, actual cases that I had solved. Well, my goal was to be a medical malpractice lawyer, and that's what I was Uh, geared up for, and I was practicing that in my own private practice. When one day I got a call from a member of the Philly mob on behalf of Frank the Irishman Sheeran. In Delaware, we all knew who Sheeran was. He was our local uh, Teamster official of Local 326 of the Teamsters, and he was the number one suspect in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. 
He'd been profiled in the New York Times in Newsweek. Uh, the the uh, FBI uh, knew who done it through informants, but they didn't have any evidence. And so they went after a short list of eight people that were involved and hounded them into jail. And Frank ended up with 32 years worth of sentencing um, for crimes that would have um, netted an average violator at most five years. But they were putting pressure on him, trying to squeeze out of him what happened to Hoffa. At that point, Hoffa uh, had been missing then for, well, he was uh, abducted in 1975 and murdered in 1975. And uh, and this was 1991. And uh, I get this call from a mobster, and he wants to hire me to get Frank out of jail prematurely. Frank had severe spinal stenosis, a kind of arthritis, and um, that he, he may qualify on medical grounds for an early release. And here I was, a medical malpractice lawyer, and uh, I filed the necessary paperwork on his behalf and represented him in a, in a hearing and got him released. Uh, it sliced uh, close to 10 years off his jail sentence. And he was thrilled by it. He took out, um, uh, he rented out a, a little room in, a, in an Italian restaurant and took me and my staff to lunch. And after lunch, he took me aside and he said to me that he was tired of being written about in all the, the uh, books and, and uh, articles on Hoffa. And while in prison, he said he read my book, The Right to Remain Silent. Well, as I, I at least hinted, my book was a real law and order book. And it was a, uh, a book that... Uh, was against the new rules that were coming out regularly uh, from federal judges that were restricting police work, particularly restricting the police in their ability uh, to question people. Uh, an example is the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, if you recall, O.J. Simpson led the uh, police on a car chase. Uh, he was trying to get away. He had uh, 10000 in cash. He had a, a whip, and um, when he was uh, returned back to the house, they, they they got him back to his own house where he was um, uh, assigned. He was actually on on one of those monitors, you know. And uh, when he arrived back at the house, he was a sitting duck for confession, an absolute pigeon waiting for a cop to question him. He was scared to death. He knew he was had. And my Italian grandmother would have would have been able to get a confession out of him. OJ, what that did Jezebel do to you, OJ? Oh, Mama Rosa, I'm so sad. And bang, you'd get a confession out of him. Instead, instead the police were forbidden to ask him a single question. They couldn't ask him, how was your, uh, how was your trip, OJ? Not a, not a word could they utter to him legally under the new rules. So my book was against those rules. 
and that was the uh, the book that he said he read in prison, and he wanted to write his side of what happened to Hoffa to prove that he had nothing to do with it, and he wanted me to write it. Well, the first thing that I learned and what I taught when I taught interrogation to cops, first thing I learned from a seasoned cop by the name of Charlie Burke, when I asked him, um, what did they, uh, he had just gotten a confession from a murderer by the name of Randolph Dickerson. Randolph had uh, lived in an apartment and he was a heroin addict and he had broken into the home, into the apartment of an elderly woman. He'd used a screwdriver to jimmy his way in through the um, the window off the fire escape. And um, he was surprised by her, and he killed her with the, with the uh, screwdriver. He then confessed to Charlie Burke. Charlie, how did you get that confession? What's your secret? I was new, and I was trying to learn. And Charlie said to me, they want to tell you, Charles. When he said that, I really didn't believe it. I mean, who wants to confess? <clears throat> but those words stuck with me. And I came to believe that there is a basic human need to confess. And that when Sheeran asked me to write his story uh, and clear him of involvement in Alpha, that he wanted to confess. And that's how I began my relationship with him. It was a five and a half year relationship. We hung out. I went to the Italian mafia social clubs. Uh, I was introduced as the writer. And I was essentially working undercover in that uh, Sharon was constantly confessing things to me. I was using my interrogation techniques on him. Techniques that I used in the book, The Right to Remain Silent, that you mentioned that President Reagan liked. And um, uh, over the course of time, he solved for me, through confession, what happened to Hoffa, all the details. They were all later corroborated by the FBI. What happened to Crazy Joey Gallo, one of the more notorious hits of our uh, modern mafia era at Umberto's Clam House in Little Italy in Manhattan. And he also solved for the world the burning question of whether the mafia truly was involved in the assassination of JFK. The mafia was involved in the assassination of JFK. And his assertions to me about that were corroborated in 2008 when the FBI released documents that, uh, that they've been holding on to since the assassination totally corroborated what, what Sheeran had confessed to me. And so these confessions became the basis of the book, I Heard You Paint Houses. I Heard You Paint Houses is a euphemistic way of saying, I heard you kill people. The paint is the blood that spatters on the walls and the floors. In 1957, Jimmy Hoffa became president of the Teamsters Union. He wanted to consolidate his power and he wanted certain rebels to be gotten rid of. Alpha preached solidarity, that the union will will help the working men and women of America, but only if everyone was solidly behind the union. 
those who were not were called rebels by Hoffa. And Hoffa viewed them as fair game to be gotten rid of. And, and at that point, Frank Sheeran, who had served in World War II uh, in 411 combat days when the average was 80, uh, Frank Sheeran was in the Thunderbird Division, which was General Patton's killer division, and they were instructed not to take prisoners. So if your lieutenant told you to take the prisoner behind the line for questioning, you would do that. But if the lieutenant added and hurry back, that meant you would kill the prisoner pretty quickly along the route to the uh, behind the lines. And then you would return to, to the front line yourself. And so he had learned to kill in the war, 411 combat days, was unheard of and still is. And uh, he was in the war from the beginning to the end. And he came back from that war with what we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder. But he was not, he didn't come back as a sadist or as some kind of a crazy person. He just had that period of adjustment that's portrayed in the brilliant movie, The Best Years of Our Lives. He gave the best years of his life to his country. And he returned and did the normal things. Uh, he was a strict Irish Catholic. His uh, father had studied for the priesthood for five years. His mother went to Mass every morning. And Frank found a lovely Irish gal to marry and to have three beautiful daughters. He went to, he went to Mass every Sunday. His um, worked as a truck driver. And through his work as a truck driver, he began to hang around with some Italian truck drivers that were doing work for the mobsters in Philly as loan shark collectors of money, bookmaking, that sort of thing. And Frank saw an opportunity to, to supplement his income as a truck driver for his family. And he began to hang out with them and began to work in that line of work. And one day he got involved in something that was way over his head and he was forced to kill a man, to atone for it. And if he didn't kill the man, a guy named Whispers de Tullio, Frank would have been killed himself. Well, he killed that man. And Frank all of a sudden found himself working for the most powerful mobster in America at the time a man named Russell Buffalino. And when Hoffa took over the Teamsters presidency in 1957, he approached Buffalino asking for muscle, asking for help so that he could get rid of rebels. And Russell referred Frank the Irishman Sheeran to Jimmy Hoffa. It was a telephone meeting Office said to him, I heard you paint houses, meaning I heard you kill people. And Sharon said, I do my own carpentry work too, which means he gets rid of the bodies. And that, and that started a, a, a dual uh, career for Sharon, working for Hoffa and working for Russell Buffalino. Could you talk about how Sharon meets Russell Buffalino? Because that's a really interesting story as well. Frank was working for... Um, a grocery chain called Food Fair 
driving trucks. And um, he was at a, a truck stop outside of Syracuse, New York, in upstate New York, when his truck broke down. He was trying to get it started, and he couldn't get it started. And this short, older, he's about 15 years older than Frank, Italian man came over to him with a toolbox and said, let me take a look. The man went into the engine, got Frank's, they, they, the truck drivers in those days referred to their trucks as horses. He got Frank's horse started, and uh, they shook hands. It was something very warm about the about this man, this Italian man who had started his started Frank's truck for him. And the Italian man was struck by the size and demeanor of Frank Sheeran. The war had toughened Frank, but he was tough enough even before the war. He was six foot four, weighed 220 pounds, and was uh, quite a specimen of manliness, to say the least. Russell Buffalino was struck by this figure and asked asked about him. Where do you hang out? Um, Frank mentioned the Friendly Tavern in Philadelphia, where the uh, Italian truck drivers hung out and where he did these little odd jobs for people, and where he had been forced, or was soon to be forced, to kill Whispers de Tulio. And uh, that meeting led to uh, Russell looking up Frank. When Russell was, Russell was not the boss of Philly. He was the boss of, of the rest of Pennsylvania, the boss of upstate New York, parts of New Jersey and parts of New York City. Russell kept a suite of rooms at the Consulate Hotel in New York. And uh, he owned the Copacabana nightclub, for example. He was extremely powerful. Frank didn't know anything about him other than that he was an older man who helped him get his horse started. And Frank began hanging out with Russell. And that was the uh, uh, chance meeting in upstate New York where two people knew that they they had uh, something about each other that they respected right away. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So how did Sheeran get involved with Whispers, and how did he murder him? Well, Whispers approached Frank and said that um, that he had lent a, he Whispers had lent a lot of money to a linen service in the uh, southern Philadelphia area, which includes basically includes the state of Delaware. Delaware is, is practically a suburb of Philadelphia. It's a small state, but everything is oriented toward Philly. The baseball teams, the football teams, the hockey teams. Anyway, um, this Whispers, who had, as Frank described it, the worst case of bad breath that I'd ever encountered. And because of that, he was required to whisper when he talked. He couldn't speak out loud to people because he, the, the odor was was um, disgusting. Really, <laughs> yeah, he sounds like a, a character out of a Damon Runyon story. Well, a lot of these people, I, I traveled with Frank for for close to five years, and and I swear, I, a lot of these people were right out of the out of the Damon Runyon cast. There was one guy that wore a black suit, black shirt, red tie, and a red handkerchief in his in his pocket. And um, we were at one, uh, I was at one of Frank's birthday parties, and this guy raises his glass and says, I want to make a toast. Frank, may the Freds leave you alone. <laughs> may the Freds leave you alone. So anyway... Um, Frank uh, is approached by Whispers, and Whispers says that my problem is I lent this money to the linen service to supply fresh linen, laundered linen to uh, restaurants and hotels. But the, my, the linen service that I lent the money to has competition from another linen service, and my linen service is having trouble paying off the debt. So I want you to torch their competition, burn them to the ground so that my linen service 
can uh, the linen servers I've lent money to can begin to start paying me back, and, and they they soak up the uh, the customers of the linen service that you're going to put out of business, and I'm going to pay you ten thousand, two thousand down, and then eight thousand when the linen service is burnt to the ground. And so Frank took the uh, took the job and uh, drove around to the linen service in Delaware, the rival linen service, casing the place, figuring out how he was going to do it. He was spotted there. Who was this giant of a man looking over our business here in Delaware? And he was reported back to the Philly mob. The, the man in charge of the Philly mob then was a man named Angelo Bruno, who will, who will be played in the movie by Harvey Keitel. And Angelo, um, called Frank in and said, what are you doing casing the, uh, linen service? And Frank said, well, Whispers hired me to torture. And Angelo said, you know who owns that linen service? And Frank said, no, I don't. And Angelo said, I do. I got a piece of that linen service. Frank was, uh, needless to say, mortified and scared. And um, Frank apologized and said, should I give him his two, give Whispers his $2,000 back? And Angelo said, no, he won't be needing it. You, you, you're the one on the hook for this. Whispers knew all all along you'd be on the hook for this. You, you'd be the only one that the, that the people at the linen service ever saw. They'd see you down there hanging around. The next thing you know, their their linen service would be burnt to the ground, and you'd be on the hook for it, and you'd be killed. And Whispers would never even have to pay you the the additional eight thousand he owed you. So you got to make it right now to get out from under this. You got to take care of whispers. And so Frank called whispers and, and arranged for a meeting late at night and uh, not far from the uh, a famous diner in Philly called the Melrose Diner. And right on the street, Frank shot him behind the ear twice. And that was the end of whispers. Frank looked at the article in the paper the next day thinking that could have been me. And it could easily have been been Frank. Can you explain how Frank Sheeran was able to rise through the ranks of the mob? Well, he he rose through the ranks in the uh, uh, in in the whole world as a result of his closeness to Russell Buffalino. Uh, Russell took an interest in Frank, really liked him. Frank had a terrific sense of humor. Frank had a great personality. And if you're seen with Russell, you, you're seen with the most respected man in the entire mafia in the country. And you're seen in his company. You're seen having dinner with him. Your wife and his wife uh, out to dinner in the Philadelphia area. And then when, when Russell referred him to Jimmy, uh, same thing happened. Uh, J- Jimmy just took a, an interest in this man, very witty man, very interesting man, very intelligent man, who in another era uh, probably would have been a professional football player. 
Uh, among the many things that I found fascinating about him was that before he got involved with these uh, mafia people, in order to supplement his income, Frank was a ballroom dance instructor. <laughs> he was as big as he was. He was light on his feet, very coordinated, and uh, loved to go dancing. Wow, that's that's just amazing. I'd like to ask you more about the Kennedys, whom you've already talked briefly about. Before JFK's murder, there was a, a long beef between Jimmy Hoffa and Bobby Kennedy. Could you walk us through this conflict, how it began, and how it progressed? Be happy to. The first sign we had in America that there was a nationwide mafia, I mean, we understood that there were individual mobsters like Al Capone, and Al Capone had his gang, and um, the 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 on-the-waterfront mobsters. We knew about that. What we didn't know was that they were all connected throughout the country to their own hierarchy, their own uh, government, their own tax system. And we learned it in in nineteen November nineteen fifty seven, when state troopers uh, in a, a town in New York called Appalachian, uh, not not too far up from uh, Pennsylvania, uh, the state troopers began to see black Cadillacs arriving at uh, the home of a suspected mobster named Joe Barbara. Uh, he was the boss of that family. Russell Buffalino was his underboss. And it was Russell, Buff- uh, Russell Buffalino's job in 1957 to organize a meeting of mobsters from around the country. And the, the, state, the state troopers raided that meeting, which four years later they would have been forbidden by the new rules of Earl Warren, the Supreme Court Chief Justice. Um, but uh, they raided that. It, you, you can see that raid in a hilarious movie with Billy Crystal and, and Bob De Niro uh, called Analyze This. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but they show that. Yep, I, I have seen it. They show that raid, and they show it as the as the humorous raid that it was with um, uh, Italian gangsters in silk suits running through the woods to get away from the raiding party of state troopers. And about 60 of them were caught. And they all listed their occupation as labor consultant. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, the, the rest of the, I was, uh, let's say, 1957, I was, uh, I was a junior in high school. And we couldn't wait for the next edition, day's edition of the New York Daily News as a, I was a New Yorker, and as a, um, began to investigate these people who were arrested and telling these stories and using their nicknames. And it was, as you mentioned earlier, like a Damon Runyon uh, book or, or a short story. And we were uh, amazed that, uh, here in upstate New York uh, was a guy from Montreal, a gangster from San Diego, gangsters from all over the country at this meeting. What was this meeting all about? And so Senator George McClellan of Arkansas, 
who was the head of the Labor Relations Committee in the U.S. Senate, decided to investigate this, that it was a labor matter because they all listed themselves as labor consultants. They put together a committee. Um, The future president, John F. Kennedy, was on the committee as a senator from Massachusetts. The future candidate for presidency, Barry Goldwater of Arizona, was on the committee. And the committee happened to have as its chief counsel, the lawyer that would ask the questions, Bobby Kennedy, the future president's brother. And so they began to subpoena these mobsters to these hearings, the McClellan hearings. And Bobby Kennedy had a very uh, surly and arrogant kind of personality. He would belittle the uh, the people that were being brought before him. Uh, a, a famous back and forth with uh, Sam Giancana, the boss of Chicago. Giancana giggled about something. And um, Bobby Kennedy said to him, uh, I thought only little girls giggled, Mr. Giancana. Why are you giggling? Uh, the, the kind of thing that an interrogator would never do. <laughs> a professional interrogator. But these investigators weren't professionals at anything. Uh, they were politicians. And their their goal was to look good on camera. And Bobby Kennedy did that to Hoffa. The mobster, the typical mobster like Sam Giancana, could take the Fifth Amendment. I, I refuse to answer on the grounds that it might tend to incriminate But the president of a labor union, by law, could not take the Fifth Amendment. He could take the Fifth Amendment if he resigned his position as president of the Teamsters. Otherwise, he had to wend his way through the questioning and not get caught in perjury and double talk when he could. And so Hoffa and uh, Bobby Kennedy became mortal enemies during that period of time when Bobby belittled Hoffa. Hoffa answered the questions by not answering them uh, and, and double talking. And uh, so that that's where things stood when in 1960, JFK was elected president. And he was elected president with the help, believe it or not, of the mafia. And that's well well-known and documented by books before my book. Uh, the old man, Kennedy, who was who was the engineer, the guy behind uh, his son becoming president, uh, promised that he would see to it that the, the Kennedys and the Kennedy regime would leave the mob alone. The old man had been a bootlegger himself. He had worked with Al Capone. He'd made a fortune selling scotch illegally in America during Prohibition. And uh, he had given his word. You help my son, JFK, get elected president, and I'll see to it that you're left alone. And then Kennedy became president, and old man Kennedy got a stroke. And he could not fulfill his promise. JFK 
appointed Bobby Kennedy as attorney general, and Bobby Kennedy immediately formed a squad that he called the Get Hoffa Squad, uh, and he immediately began to bear down on those. He, continuing what he had started in the McClellan Committee, he began to bear down on those mobsters that had been uh, arrested in the Appalachian raid. And uh, and he wrote a book called The Enemy Within. And um, Bud Schulberg, who was the, the writer of On the Waterfront, uh, wrote a screenplay based on Bobby Kennedy's book, The Enemy Within. Uh, they had a deal with uh, Columbia Pictures. And then a lawyer on behalf of the mafia went to visit the head of Columbia Pictures and assured him that he wasn't going to make this movie. And he didn't, <laughs> the head of Columbia Pictures. And then Fox uh, Pictures picked up the, the movie rights from Bud Schulberg. And again, uh, this time it was Russell Buffalino's nephew that visited the head of Fox Studio and assured him that the Teamsters would see to it that the film never reached the uh, uh, any of the theaters if they made this movie. So that movie was never made. But uh, it was uh, a crusade on the part of Bobby Kennedy to get Hoffa. Uh, I mean, calling the squad the Get Hoffa Squad. And ultimately, Bobby did get Hoffa. Ultimately, Bobby... Um, did a heck of a job locking up Teamsters uh, and uh, and other mobsters who were used to operating in total secrecy. No one even knew they existed, and now they were uh, they had a big spotlight shined on them by Bobby Kennedy. So they um, they retaliated by killing the brother, and the theory is based on an old Sicilian expression that to kill a dog, you don't cut off his tail, you cut off his head. Killing Bobby Kennedy would have been like cutting off the dog's tail. Uh, if they killed Bobby Kennedy, the brother, uh, John F. Kennedy, would come after them like there's no tomorrow. But if they killed JFK, um, Bobby's power as the attorney general uh, and brother of the president, Bobby's power, would be greatly diminished, and the new president, Lyndon Johnson, didn't like Bobby at all. Bobby was had a difficult personality, as I think I alluded to. I give him a great deal of credit for going after the mafia, but uh, uh, there's, there's ways to do it and not be hated. And that's something that every detective knows and every cop knows. You know, you 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 can interrogate people, you can make arrests, and it can be nothing personal on the part of the people you're arresting. Or you can make it personal. And Bobby made it personal. Right, right. So you you state that the mafia was involved in John Kennedy's death. Where is the proof? What leads you to believe that that is true? Well, that's a a great question. There There are... uh, books that uh, written by famous people, uh, such as uh, G. Robert Blakey, who was the uh, chief counsel to the, the second go-round, kind of, of the Warren Commission, 
when the, the House created a committee called the Select Committee on Assassinations to investigate and, and redo the JFK assassination investigation that the Warren Commission had bungled. And um, G. Robert Blakey wrote a, a book about it, about his experiences as chief counsel. And he flat out said the mafia killed JFK and got away with it. But he had no evidence. He had tremendous uh, insight into the mafia. He had tremendous understanding of their motive for killing JFK. But he had absolutely no evidence of it. And he had no evidence that the ruling commission of the mafia was involved. And um, the theory espoused and, and the speculation is that the mafia used a time-honored uh, method to kill somebody famous. They used a nut. They got a nut to believe that he was going to be paid a lot of money, that he was going to be safely whisked away from the scene, and uh, and that was Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was connected to... Uh, a guy who completely hated Bobby Kennedy and completely hated JFK. He was the boss of New Orleans, uh, name of uh, Carlos Marcello. And as the boss of New Orleans, his territory included uh, the state of Texas, the way they had the America divided in those days among the mafia chieftains. And that um, uh, Carlos is one of Carlos's uh, prime bookmakers was um, Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, uncle, and um, one of uh, Carlos's henchmen, uh, an airline pilot by the name of David Ferry, retired airline pilot by the name of David Ferry, uh, was seen in a photograph, a famous photograph that was released uh, publicly. On the on the Nightline TV show years ago, a picture of Dave Ferry uh, and a young Lee Harvey Oswald together. So there was the, the the dots were connecting, but there was no proof until I got Frank Sheeran's confession on the subject and the role he played in it, and um, and that was corroborated by the release of documents in 2008 FBI reports. Uh, that um, corroborated what Frank had told me. And what was Sheeran's role in the assassination? Frank's role was uh, was a kind of innocent one, uh, but uh, his actual physical role was to uh, deliver rifles from uh, the Genovese family in Brooklyn to uh, an airstrip outside of Baltimore. He delivered three rifles. Uh, he, he, at the time, he had no idea what, what they were for, um, but he knew um, Jack Ruby. He knew Jack Ruby from having dinners in Philadelphia, in uh, Chicago with Sam Giancana, uh, Jimmy Hoffa, and Jack Ruby, who would bring, uh, he owned strip clubs, and he would bring strippers up to uh, uh, for, for Sam Giancana. And so Frank knew that something was going on 
But he said to me, I don't have to tell you, there's nobody you could ask about something like that. And then about uh, 10 months before before Hoffa's disappearance, Hoffa and Buffalino had a frank talk about the mafia's role in the JFK assassination in front of Frank Sheeran. He was sitting there while they were discussing it. And uh, so that was further information. But when you read the latest version of my book, which was released July last year, it has 57 additional pages that I had left out of previous editions because out of concern for my own safety, I didn't want any of these mobsters deciding that I knew too much. And I waited for them to die. I waited for them to uh, go to jail. I waited for them to become government witnesses themselves. And then I could uh, release this information. And it's 57 pages in the in the latest edition. You can tell what edition you have by the yellow burst on the front that announces a Scorsese movie. That's the latest edition. And that's the one that, that demonstrates uh, uh, what the mafia did with regard to JFK. And Wonderful book, and I have read the, the latest edition. Doing very well on the bestseller list, so I'm very proud of it. I'm sure it'll do even better once the film comes out. Oh, yeah. And, and this is such a dream cast. Just incredible. It really is. And they're the nicest guys. And they're, they're really artists. You know, I'm 75. I grew up at a time when I had no idea who the director was of a movie. You know, it was a John Wayne movie or a Robert Mitchum movie, you know. Uh, and uh, I didn't really I didn't really get the, the art involved. Uh, but I do now. The, the, these people are artists. One final break as we hear from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app.
and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Thanks for hanging in there. Back to the show. So, you've already mentioned the murder of Crazy Joe Gallo, one of the most famous murders of its day. Could you talk about how Sheeran was involved? You bet. Uh, a mobster, the, the, let, let me back up and say that the way the mafia was formed, American mafia was formed in 1931 at a meeting in Chicago. Al Capone was there. It was a meeting called to order by the gangster, New York gangster, Lucky Luciano. And his dream was to have an organized mafia nationwide with its own ruling commission to square beefs, to settle issues, and to rule. And that ruling commission consisted of the five families of New York City, any one of which was bigger than any uh, family in the country. And um, so they were the most powerful families. In addition, the, the head of the Buffalo family and the head of the Chicago family. So in, originally it was a seven-member commission. And they ruled the country. And they made all the rules for the, for the rest of the mobsters in the country. And one of those was a, was a man named Joe Colombo. Colombo was feeling a lot of heat from the mafia and from what, what Bobby Kennedy had put in motion. And he struck back by creating something called the Italian American Civil Rights League saying that Italian-Americans were being stereotyped and that uh, there was no such thing as an American mafia. And he forced, uh, for example, the movie The Godfather, he forced them not to use the word mafia in the film. Uh, Mario Cuomo, who was uh, governor of New York, uh, publicly denied there was such a thing as a mafia. And... um, that uh, when he denied that, that immediately put him at the top of my list as being as being connected. Um, and um, and and so he would hold a rally, Joe Colombo, every year at Columbus Circle in New York on Columbus Day, and that was his plan. At the very second meeting. Uh, Columbo was feuding with with crazy Joey Gallo. And at the second meeting, in public, 
open air, outdoors at Columbus Circle, a nut shot Columbo in the head. He was a black guy who was posing as a photographer, and he was killed immediately on the spot. And everyone knew that Gallo had had been very close to black gangsters uh, while in prison. Uh, in the movie American Gangster, um, written by uh, the screenwriter we have in uh, uh, in I Heard You Paint Houses, Steve Zalian, uh, in American Gangster, that that black contingent of mobsters in Harlem is portrayed vividly with uh, Denzel Washington in the lead, and that was the, the the group that Crazy Joey Gallo was very close to. And so it was presumed by one and all that Gallo had gotten this nut to kill Joe Colombo, as Lee Harvey Oswald, the nut, had killed JFK. And uh, this was in retaliation for that killing. Uh, Frank Sheeran walked into Umberto's Clam House, where... Uh, Gallo was celebrating his uh, 40th birthday party uh, and uh, opened fire. Shot Gallo's um, bodyguard in the butt to neutralize him, a guy known as the Greek, and and killed Gallo. Uh, Walked out and uh, no one ever knew what happened to Gallo. The uh, movies, there, there were two movies on Gallo, uh, and there were uh, several books, six books on Gallo and on the killing. And they all blamed three gangsters who burst in to Umberto's and opened fire. But it wasn't three gangsters. It was Frank Sheeran. And I remember when he confessed it to me, uh, there's a photograph of, of, of a table in the book. There's a photograph of a table full of beer bottles. It was a, a Teamster uh, retirement benefit. And I was there with Frank. And he had just confessed to me to killing crazy Joey Gallo. And it went against everything that we knew. Everybody knew that these three Italians had done it. What are you trying to tell me you did it? And I, I had him, as I said, for five years. And I had my skills as an interrogator and cross-examiner. And I was absolutely convinced that he did it, that he did it alone. And uh, I was urged, because of all the books that claimed there were three gangsters that did it, I was urged by an editorial consultant to leave the gallow hit out of the, out of the book. And I said, no, if, uh, if it turns out it's not true, then uh, I, I don't deserve to have a book. I know what I'm doing. I, I I know how to cross-examine. I know how to interrogate. And this man is telling me the truth. He killed Gallo. So we published the book. And the next thing you know, an editor at the New York Times, a woman who was the national assignment editor, you didn't write an article about the nation in the New York Times unless she assigned it to you. She happened to be at Umberto's that night. And... Uh, she looked at the photo of Frank in the book and said, oh, my God, it gives me chills. That's the man who did it. And it was a, uh, a lone gunman. It was not three. And um, 
then I wrote an article about it for uh, Playboy, and the the cop whose case it was, a detective named Joe Coffey, who had written a book called The Coffey Files, wrote a letter to the editor uh, saying that the, that, uh, that the case was solved. It was a lone gunman, and he had l- allowed that story of three gunmen out there um, um, as an integrity test so that if an informant came forward and wanted some money for information about the three gunmen, he'd know immediately that it, that uh, he, uh, there was, he, he was not to pay them anything because it wasn't three gunmen. It was a lone gunman who did all that damage in that bar, in that nightclub, the Clam House. Incredible, incredible. So let's shift back to Hoffa for a bit. Hoffa goes to prison, and Sheeran goes to prison too. Is that right? Yeah, Frank got 32 years' worth of sentences for labor racketeering, really to, to try to force uh, the FBI put him in jail to try to force uh, information out of him. They went after all the suspects uh, and got them all for something. Just as they had gotten um, uh, Al Capone for um, tax evasion, they got him for whatever they could get him for. And they put them in jail, hoping that while in jail and while rotting, uh, they would visit them and eventually one of them would crack, but nobody cracked. Hoffa went to jail in 1967 as a result of the efforts of Bobby Kennedy. And uh, the reason he was killed is that while he was away in jail, uh, the new leader of the Teamsters was a very weak man named Frank Fitzsimmons, and he let the, the mafia do whatever they wanted. And so when Hoffa got out of jail and said that he was going to uh, clean up the Teamsters, and get rid of these gangsters that Frank Fitzsimmons had allowed in uh, and allowed to control things, the mafia was none too happy with that kind of talk. And they were none too happy with the thought of losing Frank Fitzsimmons as their patsy. There's an interesting um, uh, wiretap uh, of the Palmer Boys Social Club in uh, East Harlem. And I worked in East Harlem as a welfare investigator for two years. And you would routinely see mobsters sitting down with cops in uniform with their ties undone, having espresso together. <laughs> it was a kind of a corrupt part of the world. Uh, and uh, Fat Tony Salerno was the boss of the Genovese crime family, and he operated out of the Palma Boys Social Club. And uh, the FBI, uh, when they got new tools, uh, the tools of wiretapping, for example, uh, they they planted a bug in the Palmer Boys Social Club, and they picked up very clearly uh, Fat Tony Salerno. By then, Hoffa was was long gone. This would have been around 1985, uh, and Hoffa was gone in '75. But in 1985, they picked up Frank, uh, excuse me, Fat Tony Salerno, dictating to the Teamsters who their next president would be. <laughs> they were really powerful people. I wrote another book called uh, We're Going to Win This Thing with uh, Lynn DeVecchio, who was the supervisor of the Mafia Commission case and the uh, uh, quite a brave uh, crime fighter. And after uh, he read I Heard You Paint Houses, he asked me to write his book, which is uh, 
we're going to win this thing. And 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 also uh, Donnie Brasco, the the uh, infiltrator of the mafia, the Bonanno crime family, played in the movies by uh, Johnny Depp. Uh, his real name is Joe Pistone, the FBI agent, but his pseudonym was Donnie Brasco, Jewel Thief. And he spent six years behind enemy lines, posing as one of them. And he and I wrote a book, a sequel to the original book, Donnie Brasco, called Donnie Brasco Unfinished Business. So in two books, after I wrote I Heard You Paint Houses, in two books, I learned a great deal about the FBI's inner workings in bringing the mafia down. And uh, it's fascinating material. I know I only have an hour with you, and we're getting close to running out of time. So I, I do want to ask you about Jimmy Hoffa. Frank Sheeran admitted to you that he was the one who killed Jimmy Hoffa. Could you talk about this a little bit? Why and how he was murdered? Frank Sheeran had tremendous amount of respect for Jimmy Hoffa. Frank Sheeran was a, a, a very a serious union man. Once he got into union work, he fell in love with it. He loved looking out for his for the working men and women of America. And so did Jimmy Hoffa. We all, there's, a, there's an old song, It Had to Be You. <laughs> with all your faults, I love you still. <laughs> it had to be you. Oh, sure. It, it had to be you. That's it. I don't, you don't want to hear me sing it. <laughs> I can't carry the tune. But I know the lyrics. And uh, with all your faults, I love you still. And and that's how I view Frank Sheeran and I view Jimmy Hoffa. With all their faults, their main goals in this world was to provide for the American worker. Uh, and uh, and they were serious about it. They worked very hard at it. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't do some things wrong. I mean, Frank murdered uh, Jimmy Hoffa, uh, pilfered some money, you know got caught doing it. But um, the mafia, as I mentioned, were none too happy with the kinds of things that Hoffa was saying when he got out of jail. And they didn't want him to take back his union. And they ordered him not to do it. And he defied them. In fact, he said, to, when Frank said to him, there's a mafia expression, tell him what it is. Tell him what it is means if he doesn't do it, he's going to be killed. And Russell said to Frank, tell him what it is. Tell your friend what it is. And when Frank repeated that to Hoffa, Jimmy, they're serious. Our friend, our friend himself told me to tell you what it is. And Hoffa's reply was, they wouldn't dare. Well, that's not something you say to those people. And uh, as a consequence... Um, Hoffa was ordered to be killed. And uh, that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Read the book for the sure, rest. Sure, sure. <laughs> so I know you have to go, but I've got one quick question left for you. You, you mentioned you used your interrogation skills, I'm sure subtly, on, on Frank Sheeran. Can you give an example of how you cajoled information from him? Well, I will, I will tell you that the primary technique is to believe in your heart that they want to confess. And, and that keeps you going through thick and thin. And I 
I preyed upon his Catholicism. I was raised Catholic. Uh, and one of the techniques you use is you blame the victim, as my grandmother did with O.J. Simpson. O.J., what did the Jezebel do to you? She drove you to do it, O.J. So I would question what what Hopper was thinking when he defied the mafia. And I would tell Frank, he brought it on himself, Frank. This is crazy. I'd have killed him. You can't talk like that. And you blame the, you blame the victim for his own death. And that takes some of the guilt away. That's one technique. Um, but persistence. You keep, as I said earlier, you keep believing that you're going to get the truth. And as time goes on, you do. Frank was a strict Catholic, and so he would call me the Holy Roller when I would be resorting to uh, my Catholic bag of tricks. And this was not something I could put in the early version of the book. I certainly didn't want mobsters around the country thinking that I took advantage of this old man's um, desire to go to heaven, which I did. We would talk about that. We would say the Hail Mary together. We would say the Our Father together. And um, anyway, you know, you, you just you just keep listening. You have to be a great listener to be a, an interrogator. And I used to teach the cops EFW. Every effing word, every effing word has some meaning. Uh, it, it's like the choir master who hears the boy in the back row singing slightly off key and can identify and point to exactly who is off key. Your ear is is listening for something that's a little off key. That's not right. And your ear is listening to when it is right. When Frank confessed the gallow thing to me against all the prevailing wisdom, it was right on. I said to him, uh, and I would I would question him at odd moments. We're at this retirement party. You can see the photograph of me leaning closer to Frank. I've got my tape recorder in my hand and trying to make sure I get his words because I knew he was in the process of confessing to killing crazy Joey Gallo. I said to Frank, why is it that you were so valued by Russell? Why is it that he thought so well of you? And Frank said, well... If I tell you that, and this is in the middle of a big, a big teamster retirement benefit. And Frank said to me, uh, amid the, the clink of, uh, of beer bottles, Frank said to me, if I tell you that, I got to tell you something else. Frank, this is no time to be coy. This is no time to be holding back from me. You, this is for your own good. You've got to get this off your chest. You've got to get this out. And, uh, he said, uh, you ever hear of Joe Gallo? I said, sure, crazy Joey Gallo. And he said, a fresh kid. And that immediately told me he killed Gallo. Or he was about to confess to killing Gallo, and he was, and he did. Another thing you do as an interrogator is you, you keep returning to things you've already questioned him on to make sure that he... Uh, 
and he's old, you know, to make sure that his that his memory is correct, uh, and uh, and that he can articulate right then, right to the end. He 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 was articulate, and in my last uh, interview of him, my last interrogation of him, it was on videotape. All the rest were on audio tape, and he had uh, promised to give me a videotape confession. And uh, after that confession, uh, he stopped. He told his son-in-law, I'm checking out. And he stopped eating and killed himself. He was ready to to meet his maker. He was ready to, as he would put it, as he did put it, uh, I believe that there's something after this life. And if I got a shot at it, I don't want to close the door. Uh, Catholics call it a um, law and order. It's called a deathbed confession. Catholics call it a deathbed conversion, where you return to the to the religion of your youth uh, as you're nearing your death. In that uh, deathbed conversion, another expression is a foxhole conversion, and Sharon had a lot of that during the war. You promised to to be true and faithful. And I heard you paint houses is available pretty much everywhere, right? It's everywhere. You everywhere. Can't, you can't avoid it. <laughs> you can't avoid it. In all the bookstores, it's on Amazon. I heard you paint houses. Currently, the movie's uh, uh, going by the title of The Irishman. So, but the, but the book, I heard you paint houses. Well, well, thank you again for your time today. My pleasure. Enjoyed talking to you. That was Charles Brandt, author of I Heard You Paint Houses. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.